The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We are going to finish chapter 2 starting in verse 17 and work our way all the way through chapter 3. It's a big section of scripture. Um, for those of you who don't know, the section breaks, the chapter breaks, the verse breaks that are in the Bible are not inspired. They were put in a whole lot uh, longer after the Bible uh, was um, put together, um, inspired by the Holy Spirit. The chapter breaks and the verses are there for our convenience. Um, so you don't say scroll, run, scroll one, three meters down, left hand side, right? So you can actually say chapter three, verse two or something like that. Uh, and so those are just put in there by men who saw fit. So they're not all, I would say in my own opinion, not all in the right spot. Um, but I'm not the one who they asked to do it a thousand years ago. So uh, they are where they are, but we will continue all the way through. And one of the reasons being is it's one full thought of Paul as he's writing here. So it flows really nicely together. It is a big piece of scripture. So as we go into each section, I'm going to read that first and then actually talk about it as opposed to just reading it all now because I don't want you to forget what we read through. So uh, as we're going through this, just by way of summary or, or um, kind of a, a synopsis, if you will, of, of how we got to where we are. I think it's very important as Paul's starting this. Um, if you remember him and his missionary cohorts, they went to Thessalonica, came uh, from um, uh, Philippi. You can read about that in Acts 16 and 17. They were treated very poorly there, chased out of town, or not really chased out of town, but they were sent out of town. And uh, he came to Thessalonica. He says he reasoned in a synagogue for three Sabbaths, so we know he was there longer than just three weeks or four weeks. Um, primarily Gentiles were saved through his ministry. And uh, what we read in Acts 17, 5 through 7, I want to read this for you. So this is speaking of Paul in Thessalonica. It says, But the Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, <clears throat> and attacking the house of Jason... They were seeking to bring him out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men have upset the world and come here also. And Jason welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. So the uproar in Thessalonica happens. They can't find Paul and his, his missionary cohorts. Because they were immediately sent away. Paul and Silas were sent from Thessalonica, and they went under cover of night to Berea, another city a few miles away. The Jews that were persecuting Paul and Silas in Thessalonica heard that the group had gone to Berea and that they were sharing the same gospel message there. So they got the mob together. They followed them from Thessalonica to Berea. They started to stir up the Berean Jews and once again, Paul and his Paul leaves. Timothy and Silas actually stay in Berea. Paul leaves, goes from Berea to Athens, getting away from the persecution. So now Paul is alone in Athens. And the gospel proclamation, as he was in Athens, you can read uh, in Acts 17 and 18, didn't necessarily go as it normally did. Shared the gospel all the way at the end of the chapter. It says a few people believed. But for the most part, there's never been a church that we know of that was planted there through Paul's efforts, and he was simply made fun of. They technically called him a seed picker, meaning he just picked up little things from various religions and tried to pass it off as something that was new. 
So with all of that, it's important to understand Paul's frame of mind as he's writing this in verse 17. Remember how he told him these things. I cared for you as a nursing mother. I exhorted you as a father did. He said, I shared my life with you. I never asked you for anything. In fact, I was a witness to you for you to follow, to be an imitator of me as I imitated Christ. But you see, now there was a problem. Paul was gone. Paul left them. And so now these false teachers moved in and they said, look, your beloved Paul is gone. Hard times come and he took off. All that Paul said, he's not even living it out anymore. Namely, they're saying, how can you look at Paul as such a good father if he ran away from us in Thessalonica? He ran away from us again in Berea. And now he's in Athens by himself. It's been six to nine months and he hasn't even been back. Paul wants this church to know that though he is gone, he has not forgotten this church. He may not even be in the same region. We would say he's a few states away, but Paul's heart still desires to be with the body there in Thessalonica. They're in his thoughts and his prayers, and he actually says several times his deepest desire is to have fellowship back with the body. He's just unable to make it. Now, I thought it'd be helpful just so we don't remove ourselves so far from this in our own minds. We think, oh, that's, you know, some 2,000 years ago when this is happening. But if you remember, we all have short memories. But if you remember a year, a year and a half ago, this exact same thing happened to Pastor James Coates in Canada. He was removed. Oh, he willingly went, but he was removed from his church. He was in jail for over 30 days for having a church service. And do you know what happened when he was gone? Did you ever follow up to see the, uh, I'll use air quotes, faith leaders of Alberta, Canada came out. And you know what they said about him? They said, he doesn't actually love you people. They said, he's put thousands of lives at risk for what? And then they said, he should rather just shut his church down like the rest of us and stop being a bad witness. That's what the faith leaders were saying about him as he was in jail. And I, I, uh, I listened to him. I read the letters that he wrote to his own church and to surrounding churches that supported him. And it was absolutely fantastic because you know what he did? He paraphrased 1 Thessalonians and inserted his own church into that because that's exactly what was happening to him. And it is exactly what's on the horizon for believers in the future. Very fascinating stuff. So with that being said, we're going to see Paul's heart here for his church. And it really shines in this section, I believe, this larger section of Scripture. But uh, really, his desires are coming out. And so as I was reading through this, I see four desires all believers should have for one another. Just as you read Pastor Coates' letter back to his own people and you read Paul's letter back here, there is this overwhelming desire, many desires that they had, and they want to communicate that properly to their people because false teachers are coming in. So four desires all believers should have for one another. And we'll read verses 17 through 21. So 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 through 20, Paul says, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you? In the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming, for you are our glory and joy. So if we truly care for one another, you can simply just read what the text says. We will have a desire to be with one another. 
Paul desired to see their face, to, to the, the text says to be face to face, to be in the same area as them, to have physical contact with them, to be, to have in the same presence as them. He was struggling because he couldn't get back to Thessalonica. The language that he chooses here is actually really emotionally charged. You can start to see his heart and and the way that the, the text or the, they translate this, when he says, haven't been taken away, the actual rendering is, haven't been made an orphan, meaning taken away from his family is how he saw the Thessalonians. He wants the church to understand it wasn't his decision to abandon them, but he was actually driven away. He was forced out by the false teachers. And even though it had only been that six to nine months that he was away, his heart was heavy and he still desired to see them. Notice, though, he says, I may be gone physically, but he said, I'm still with you in spirit. That means that the church never left his thoughts, never left his heart, you could say, as he constantly thought of them. The church was on his mind, and his heart was just overflowing with a desire to be with them. He says, we were all the more eager with great desire. The emphasis that Paul is saying, I wanted to be with you. He knew the church was suffering. He knew he wasn't there. It was tearing him up not to be next to the believers and having the opportunity to see them face to face, to go through this trial with them. And then in verse 18, we see this desire that we have. So if we desire to be with one another, why do we desire it? Because we know our enemy doesn't want it. To not desire to be with one another is to follow what the enemy wants. The reason he couldn't make it, it says, is because Satan hindered them. He means it's like Satan cut the way off for him to come. We have to remember that Satan is always opposed to the gospel going forth, and Satan is always opposed to the fellowship of believers. Now, in this particular instance, we don't know what it was that Satan did to stop Paul, but we do know that Paul put it, the blame exactly where it needed to be because Paul not going had nothing to do with physical authorities that were holding him back, but it's a spiritual reality and a spiritual battle that Paul was fighting. And that's today. The Bible speaks of Satan opposing the gospel, attacking the unity of the fellowship of the churches, and attacking spiritual leaders within those churches. Satan is called through Scripture the father of lies. He desires to deceive believers he uses false miracles, and he tries to tempt them away from staying the course with Christ. Though we must be careful, I oftentimes sadly hear people give Satan far more power than what he actually has. Satan is not God. He doesn't possess any attributes of God. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He's not a creator. He's not God's equal. There's not a cosmic struggle between God and Satan. Who's going to win? Satan is a created being. God allows Satan to do whatever God wants him to do. The Bible actually says that our struggle as believers, our adversary is Satan. 1 Peter 5.8, be of sober spirit, be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It's not God and Satan struggling. You can actually read ahead in the Bible and see how it ends. Were they ones who Satan is struggling against. We're the ones that he is coming and attacking. Now, for sure, we'll probably never actually face Satan himself. He's 
not everywhere all times. But the world system that he creates and perhaps the, the demons who follow him. But it's a spiritual battle. Hey, one of these scriptures that you wish you could just go into a whole lot more. But unfortunately, uh, time constrains us. But I will say this. We are tempted by Satan or the world's ways or the demons with very good things all the time. Teaching the Bible study for the kids uh, for day camp for the last two weeks, the emphasis that I was putting on for them was that in Genesis 3-6 when Eve was tempted, it didn't say that the fruit looked horrible. It was good. It was desirable to the eyes. 1 John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Satan comes after your desires. We oftentimes think lust and we automatically think sexual. But what he's saying is here, the idols of our heart, the desires that we have for ourselves, Satan comes after these. The things that we see tempt us, our pride, the things that we think we deserve. They were all there in Genesis 3.6 as Eve was tempted. And nothing has changed in 6,000 years, and we need to be on guard. And then finally, in verses 19 through 20, we should desire to be with one another because it brings joy. And this isn't the joy that's just temporary here on earth, but we're talking about an eternal joy with one another. Paul has our final destination in mind, so as believers, as those who have repented of their sin, our final destination is heaven. The anticipation of Christ's return and the future perfection of all believers should be what motivates us in ministry and to have fellowship with one another here on earth. Paul didn't just want to see him because he missed them or because he was a pastor or a church planter or because he felt obligated. It was actually because of joy, hope, a sense of accomplishment that the church generated inside of him. This is for us today. Think about it this way. Our desire should be that all in the church, you look around to your left and to your right, all in the church should say, yes, I'm saved, that we can see them actually persevere to the end. That is the hope that Paul speaks of here and throughout this entire letter to the Thessalonians. He has the final coming of Christ in mind. Paul wanted to be with them to make sure that when Christ came, they stood at the ready. He wanted them to persevere and have their faith persevere until the end. And you and I should be living the same way, knowing that the Lord can come back at any time for His church. I think oftentimes we push it to the back burner because, well, it hasn't happened yet. Well, the simple fact that it hasn't happened yet should cause us to realize that it's going to happen. And this is going to be the main theme in chapter 4, so I'm not going to go in depth here. But our knowledge that Christ is coming back should fuel our desire to see one another. So, first of all, our desire is to simply be with one another in verses, uh, the verses thir- uh, 17 through 20. And then as Paul starts here in chapter 3, 1 through 5, we should have a desire to strengthen and encourage one another. So not just be with one another, but as we are with one another, that desire to strengthen and encourage. And Paul says in the first five verses in chapter 3, Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. 
For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it has come to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. So see the concern that Paul has both in verses 1 and verses 5. He has a desire to see the church, and there's this uncertainty of what has happened, and it kind of reached the peak in Paul's heart, and he had to find out. He had to do something about it. When you compare Acts 17 and 18 to what's going on here, Paul is dying on the vine in Athens, you could say. It's not a good time for Paul. You can read about it in 2 Corinthians as well. But Paul, what does he do? He sends Timothy to go and encourage these brothers. So really, verses 1 and 2, if we want to strengthen and encourage one another, it's going to cost us something. When Paul sent Timothy, it meant that Paul would be alone. They joined him in Corinth when they were able to, but Paul was alone for several months. Paul put the others first, even to the detriment of his own well-being. His desire to strengthen the church and his desire to encourage them to continue on was greater than his own desire to have fellowship with Timothy there. And I understand this is a hard concept. One of the oftentimes repeated phrases is, what about me? And don't get me wrong, it's not a bad thing. Paul actually says in Philippians 2, 3 and 4, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And listen to this. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Paul's saying, look, you have to look out for your own interests, but don't put them above the interests of others. Don't think about others more than you're thinking about yourself. Yes, you have to take care of yourself, the Bible says. But are you taking care of yourself to the detriment of your fellow believers? This is what Paul's modeling here to the Thessalonians. He knew if Timothy was going to go, it was going to put him in a bad spot. He was putting the interest of the church in Thessalonica. He was willing to sacrifice that fellowship with Timothy in order to make sure that the church in Thessalonica was not falling for the false teachers. And then in verse 3, we strengthen and encourage one another to build up one another's faith. Have you ever built up somebody's faith? Strengthen their faith. These words here, strengthen and encourage. Just define them for you to give you kind of an idea of what Paul's talking about. To strengthen means to make stable or to place something firmly. Regarding their faith, Paul sent Timothy there in order to make sure that their faith was firmly placed somewhere. Your faith has to have a strong foundation, a firm place to set itself on. We would say our faith needs to be grounded in God's word. And this is why, contrary to modern-day voices, our doctrine actually does matter. What we believe is rooted in something. If that something is not the Bible, then it's not going to be rooted in something that's going to be able to last the storms of life that come. Paul knew this and sent Timothy back to take care of the church's faith. And then to encourage them means like to instruct, to teach them. So not only was he to say, hey, you need to have your faith grounded in the word, but as your faith is grounded in the word, now it's time to live that faith out. Paul wasn't there for a very long time. He was there long enough to teach some pretty heavy doctrine, 
But now he said, hey, I taught you this. I'm sending Timothy back. He's now going to further teach you how it is you are to live, how you put these things into practice. Paul sent Timothy to establish their faith in the word of God and then come alongside them and motivate them to live in the proper way as they were taught. And this is what we would say our modern-day discipleship programs are, discipling one another. When we disciple one another, we're strengthening and we're encouraging each other through the Scriptures. When you disciple somebody, you're showing them the Bible. You're giving them a foundation to have their life, and then you instruct them in that word as how they are to live. And then that person does it to somebody else, and that person does it to somebody else, and that's how the faith grows. They've been doing it for a few thousand years, and we are to continue doing it today. So not only do we strengthen and encourage each other to build up our own or each other's faith, but in verses 4 and 5, we do it to persevere through trials. We want to encourage each other. We want to strengthen each other because we all know that trials are coming. Contextually, the purpose of the strengthening and encouraging was for the Thessalonians not to lose heart over the persecution that both was upon them and that came upon Paul. They were reminded that Christians have been destined for persecution. When persecution came upon them, it wasn't a time to leave their faith. It wasn't a time to abandon all that they held dear. It was a time to adhere to it with a greater tenacity. We have to have the right view of trials so that we can strengthen and encourage those who are around us who are experiencing trials. Notice in verse 5, Paul actually brings Satan back into the conversation. He calls him the tempter. Not only did Satan somehow hinder Paul from making it back to Thessalonica, but now he's saying, I'm hopeful that Satan is not the one who is tempting you to move away from the faith. He was fearful that the Thessalonians were going to abandon the faith. And this isn't my, my own thought. I found this somewhere. I don't remember where. But we know Satan uses three basic tactics against people to keep them in darkness and under his control. We know he wants to prevent people, first and foremost, from believing at all. Remember last week, the false teachers came in. They were preaching a false gospel. If people cannot hear the gospel, they cannot respond to the gospel in faith. So the first thing Satan wants is to prevent the gospel from going out at all. Secondly, we also know that if people do hear the gospel, Satan wants to make sure they have no interest in it whatsoever. Similar, once again, to what we talked about last week, it's the difference between actually hearing the gospel message and accepting the gospel message. I would, off the cuff, say probably tens of thousands, if not millions of people around the world agree that the gospel is good news, but they've never actually accepted it and been born again. Satan wants them to be comfortable in the spot of agreeing with what the Bible says, agreeing with what their pastor says, agreeing with what the truth says, but then walk away, never actually putting it into their own hearts to be born again. And this is actually Matthew 13, the parable. He says, the seed is planted, it's received with joy, but when affliction comes, the person immediately falls away. So not only does Satan want to prevent the gospel, but when the gospel does go out, he wants to make sure that people have no interest in it. And then lastly, we know that as someone is born again, Satan wants their faith to be very weak. 
He wants them to be so focused on themselves or so focused on their trials, so focused on what's going on around them that they forget that their new life is all about God and others. His goal is to get you and I so wrapped up in our own life with our own issues and our own interests that we no longer have a desire to strengthen and encourage others. This is why Paul sent Timothy at a great cost to himself to encourage them, to strengthen them, and this rightly should be our desire as well. Our entire Christian life is really just a constant stress to go the opposite direction. You should feel that pull every single day because the world is going this way and God says to go this way. You should have that tension in your heart all the time. Our own desires, our flesh wants to go back, what we think is easy. We want to give up. We want to stop the fight. And Paul's saying, no, don't be tempted by Satan to do that. And how do we get around that? We need to be with one another. We need to encourage one another to continue in the faith. And if you see at the end of verse 5 there, Paul knew the very high cost if this church or these believers had fallen away. He says his labor would be in vain. We talked about this last week or the week before, that vain meaning something that is, is worthless. It's good for nothing. So Paul would have went there and he says, my work would be for nothing, worthless, if this church simply walked away. Now, if you're like me and you've discipled a few people over the last couple of decades, you can look back and you can see people that have abandoned the faith for their own pleasures. And it's not a good feeling to know that you've labored alongside someone, you've labored with someone, you've encouraged that person, they've encouraged you, and then one day the tempter comes and tempts them away from the faith that they once proclaimed just to show that their hearts were never actually born again in the first place. They simply heard it, the message, but they never accepted it as their own. While the excuses abound as to why people do not persevere, I have found, at least in my own experience, they've all had something in common. After isolating themselves from other believers, after stopping their continued um, attendance at church, they succumb to the desires of the world and to the idols of their own heart. It's unfortunate, but it's been happening for decades and decades. That's why our desire as believers should be to see one another persevere, <clears throat> even even greater than our, having our own comfort in this life. And that's what Paul is getting at here. We all need encouragement. We all need to be strengthened in our faith. And none of us should be afraid to reach out to another believer to comfort and to encourage them. So we saw our first desire should be to simply just be with one another. Very simple. When we're with one another, our second desire then <clears throat> should be to strengthen and encourage one another. So while you certainly are in proximity with each other, there is something you should do, and that's to encourage one another, to strengthen one another. And then in verses 6 through 9, we should all have a desire to rejoice in one another's faith. We should all have a desire to rejoice in one another's faith. Let me just read to you verses 6 through 8. And it says, But now, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 6, But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you, 
For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. He says, for now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. So a desire to rejoice in each other's faith. If you notice here as we're reading through, there's a bit of a shift, right? Paul was talking about, but when we were there, we were taken away. He was telling the story. And now you see a shift there in verse 6, but now that Timothy has come. So he's now his narrative changes from what happened after he left to what happened once Timothy came to him. And so verse 6, we rejoice with one another because their faith is genuine. Because their faith is genuine. The phrase here that Paul uses for good news is the same word we get our, our word evangelism or gospel from in the scriptures. What's Paul saying? He's saying that he is confident that their saving faith is true and real. The church had this genuine love. And if you look what he says there, he actually says that they have a, a, a genuine love, but then he doesn't put a, an object to the love. You see how he says good news of your faith and love. But it doesn't say good news of your faith and love for, good news of your faith and love to. It's just this general concept. And I, I like that. There's no object attached to it. And I would say it's most likely it characterizes their general faith and their general love for their works in the Lord. They just had a life that was characterized by love. I'm sure Timothy came back to Paul and he said, hey, these guys treated me really well. They really want to see you, Paul. <clears throat> they hope you can make it back. And I, and I think Timothy, or Paul is rejoicing here because their love was so evident to the onlooking world and there's no way that that love could have come from anything other than a genuine faith in Christ. So we rejoice with one another because their faith is genuine. In verse six or verse seven, then we rejoice with one another because it actually strengthens us. You ever try to be bitter at somebody and pray for their well-being at the same time? It's kind of an exercise in futility. You can't do it. And so we rejoice in other people's faith. Because it brings us strength as well. Even though Paul had faced and certainly was facing persecution, when he heard of their faith, it brought him comfort. It brought him strength. You notice here Paul wasn't worried about himself. He was worried about the church growing in their faith. He knew that if they were growing in their faith, everywhere we see in the scriptures, if they're growing in their faith, he's confident that they're actually saved. And that means that his work there would not have been in vain. So when you hear of others who are persevering in their faith and growing, do you rejoice over that? Thinking back to Pastor Coates, does the story strengthen you or do you shrug it off as no big deal? Unfortunately, in modern day Christianity, the headlines read, not real persecution. Just because you're not allowed to preach at a church as a pastor doesn't mean it's actual persecution that you're in jail for 30 plus days. It's unfortunate. We tend not to rejoice over someone's faith and we go to the other extreme. We can either be indifferent, we cannot recognize the reality of what actually happened or even worse, we can tend to be jealous. But Paul said something about this. Philippians 1, he says, 
Philippians 1.14, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Paul's saying, I got put into prison, and because of that, people are sharing the gospel even more, and more people are getting saved. So when you hear of these men who are imprisoned for their faith, does it give you more courage to actually speak the word of God? They're not imprisoning, we talked about last week, remember? They're not imprisoning other faiths. They're imprisoning Christians who are speaking the gospel message of Jesus Christ. That should give us courage that we have the actual truth and shouldn't cause us to shrink back and just seek the comfort that our culture offers us. We must be like Paul. When we hear that someone is standing firm in the faith, our desire should be to rejoice with them. Even if not in person, we can still rejoice as we hear. Because the Christian life is not about us. It's not a competition. But it's a chance to be used by God, by His grace, for His great glory. And it meant so much to Paul to hear that they were standing firm. I I like what Paul says here. And he says that because they were strong in their faith, look what he says, for now we really live. I love that. And what he's actually saying is here, his life was on hold. He was so concerned with what was going on at the church in Thessalonica. He's like, I couldn't even move forward. I couldn't think of anything else. I couldn't do anything. I was so worried about you guys. I love you so much. My life was on hold waiting to hear. But then when it came back, it's, he's strengthened to the point of being energized to continue in the mission from the Lord. And maybe you're, you can relate. Maybe as a parent, your kids have gone off and you think, oh man, I wonder what's going to happen when they're gone. Maybe you've discipled somebody and now they're away and they're on their own and temptations are coming at them. And in your own heart, you're thinking, what's going to happen? And you're just waiting. You're waiting to hear back, though you don't really want to hear back because you don't really want to hear that it was bad, but you want to hear back because you have to know what's going on and you're praying that it's good. And that's Paul as he's sitting there waiting to hear back what was going on. And it was a relief to his soul to hear that they were standing firm in the faith. So our first desire is to be with one another. We saw that in verses 17 through 20. And then as we're with one another, verses 1 through 5 should be to strengthen and encourage one another. Verses we went over in 6 through 9, we should have this desire to rejoice in one another's faith. And then finally in verses 9 through 13, we have our fourth and final desire, and it should be a desire to pray for one another. Let me read verses 9 through 13 with you. And Paul writes, For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. 
So Paul starts this prayer, the place we all should start our prayer, it's towards God. All the work that had been done, all that he had been talking about at Thessalonica, all that he was saying that their faith was strong and everything that was going there was all there because of God. And Paul cannot help himself but rejoice and break out with great joy. I hope you've experienced this in your own prayers where you're praying for someone, you're praying for a place, and your heart just gets so overfull with joy because you can see what God is doing there in that place. And look at what he says. What thanks can we render? In other words, he's saying, I don't even know how to properly express my gratitude to God for all that God is doing there. He didn't say, look at all that I've done. He didn't say, I don't know how to tell you guys how great I am, but you can look around and see everything that I've done and you can thank me for it. He said, I don't even know how to thank God for what he's done. All he could say was, thanks God. Hearing of God's grace working so mightily in the lives of the Thessalonians made Paul just grateful beyond any words that he could possibly express because he knew that there was no way anything he could say or do would ever be able to pay back God for what he had done. Notice though in verse 10, even though Paul rejoices in what he heard, he still knows they need to be prayed for so that they would stay the course. Paul prayed for them day and night, meaning that they were constantly on his mind. This young church was filling Paul's prayers because Paul knew exactly what this church was facing. He repeats his desire once again to see them face to face, and he tells them he wants to complete what is lacking in their faith. Paul's love is just so evident for this church as you read throughout this letter. And look at how Paul dresses the prayer. May our God and Father. And it's, it's a, a small detail, but it brings out Paul's heart. He says this word may, right? It's very intentional. And it really expresses to the church, we would say, Paul's deepest wishes or his deepest desires. The language here is, is very particular so that they would know exactly what Paul had in his heart for them. So he not only thanks God, but now he also requests God to do work on their behalf. Paul uses this God and Father language here. He includes himself to show that he thinks of the church as he does himself under the care of their heavenly Father. And then he also indicts uh, or indicates that there's this, this personal relationship with their heavenly Father. And as you can see in this prayer, Paul also entreats Jesus, their Lord, in the prayer. On a side note, I get the question once in a while, who should we pray to? And you can see here, Paul prayed to God the Father and Jesus the Lord, his Lord, our Lord. Paul prayed that the Father and the Son would make a way for him to get back to the church. So Paul says Satan hindered him. Paul said he wanted to see him face to face. And now he's saying, I'm praying that God would make a way back to the church. And I think this is a great reminder for us. As I was reading through this, I myself was convicted. How often do we say we desire to do something but never really commit it to prayer? Yes, I would love to do that for the Lord. Yes, I would love to go over here. I would love to do this. And then it just, it's just a fleeting thought that never actually gets put to prayer. And Paul says, look, 
I want to come, I want to see you face to face so seriously that I want to be there is the fact that I am praying for this to happen. Satan is hindering it, but God can make it happen if this is what he desires. Going to them was a good desire. We would read through this and say, yes, Paul had a good desire, but unfortunately, it just wasn't happening. And I think it's a good place to say for our own hearts, we may have really good intentions and we may have really good desires for someone, but it doesn't mean that that's always God's desire for them. We don't know why Paul was not able to return, but we know that if God wanted him to, he would have been there. And notice what Paul doesn't do. He says, I desire to come to you. He doesn't what? He doesn't say an excuse as to why he couldn't come. He just said Satan hinders us. He doesn't complain and say, oh, I'd love to be there. This is horrible. I wish I was with you. I don't know why this isn't happening. But I would say most importantly what Paul's not doing is trying to make a way on his own to be there. We can easily fall into this trap. Because we look at it and we say, hey, this is a beneficial thing for me to do. This would honor God. This would bless God. This would bless the people. God's not making a a door open, so I'm going to have to find a window somewhere to get through. Paul never went around God. Paul certainly didn't sin to get over there. But he fully trusted God in Christ to know that if he was supposed to be in Thessalonica, Paul would be in Thessalonica. We know that God allowed people to go there because Timothy went and came back. So for some reason, God did not want Paul himself to be there. Paul told them he wanted to come. He wasn't able to. So he did the absolute best thing that he knew he could do. He entreated the Lord's blessing to make a way. It was out of Paul's hands. And so after he tells them this, these last two we see in verses 12 and 13, we see the content of Paul's prayer. First of all, we should pray for increasing love in one another. When we do pray for one another, there has to be some substance to the prayer. He didn't pray that they would figure out how to love each other. He didn't pray that, hey, I hope that you just kind of grow in this. But look at what he actually says. He says, may the God and Father himself, right? May the Lord cause you to increase. He's praying that God would be the one that causes the increase in love for one another. And not just an increase in love, but he also says that they would be abounding in love. What those two increase and abound, very similar terms, but to to let you know how they go together, it means that their capacity for love would grow and that their outward display of love would also grow. Because he wanted them to show the love that was rightly being increased in their hearts. Christian love is not something that has an expiration date on it. It's not a love that just stops. It's a love that continues to grow from now until we reach eternity. And he asked them to, to God to increase their love for the church and those outside of the church. Our love should reflect the character of God. We're one with those who are in the church and we're long-suffering with those who are outside of the church, praying for their repentance and their coming to faith. And then in verse 13... Not only should we be praying for each other to increase in love, but we should be praying for each other's growth and sanctification. The purpose for his prayer for the church to grow in love is for God to establish them blameless in holiness, without blame in holiness. 
Since there's this purpose statement in verse 13, we have that so that that's there, telling us the purpose of why, we need to understand what Paul is saying is that a blameless and sanctified heart only grows and will only abound if the soil of the heart is full of that abundant love for those inside the church and those outside the church. A loveless Christianity is no Christianity at all. And we all need to and are all called to present the love of Christ to the onlooking world as a way of life. It's not something that we turn on and turn off. This, is, this should be our prayer for each other, to increase in love, to increase in sanctification, and to be blameless in holiness. Because to be without blame in holiness is to be judged acceptable when Christ comes back. He's talking about the believer's uh, ethical relationship to God. God's saints, those who have been born again, are those who now live their lives reflecting the values and reflecting the character of God. Now we'll go into this next week, but I just want you to notice here briefly the progression. You see in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 13, it says that God is going to establish their hearts. Do you see that? God is going to establish their hearts. But then as soon as you go from verse 13 uh, in chapter 3 to chapter 4, verse 1, he says, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received instruction from us on how you ought to walk and please God, that you excel still more. So you see, God did the work in their heart, but then they still were responsible for the ones who were doing it in their own life. It's the sanctification of the believer. And I'll, I'll just say this before we talk about it next week. But if you're not being sanctified, you haven't been justified. So this prayer for them to grow in love is rooted in this very important fact. God the Father and the Lord Jesus are coming back and there's a future judgment for everyone. His desire to be there was to make sure that when Christ comes back, that they will stand blameless in holiness before God. And in verse 13, Paul focuses on the heart. Do you see that? And he says, may establish your hearts without blame. Heart, your heart is called the mission control center. It's the seat of all of our emotions. It's where our thoughts and our actions are. So if your heart is not pure and your heart is not clean, the actions coming out of it are not going to be either. Perseverance until the end Blameless and holiness is what God expects. So how are your desires for the body of Christ? You look around, you say, you got people sitting around you. How, is your, how are your desires for them? Do you desire to be with one another? Do you desire to strengthen one another? We talked about this last week, but if our desire is to be around the world and not the saints, we really need to look at our own hearts and say, are we actually in the faith? Do we desire to rejoice in the faith of others? Do we rejoice when we hear someone standing strong in the faith? But remember, to rejoice when we hear about somebody in the faith, it means that we have to be around one another so we can strengthen and encourage one another. And then how are your prayers for each other? Just ask yourself, when was the last time you sat down and prayed for the church members here, the ones sitting around you? To pray for them, you have to ask them, what can I pray for you for? So all of these are grounded in the fact that we are one body with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
If we are looking to only be around people who interest us or have the same hobbies as us, we will not have these deep desires as Paul did for the church here. So while he was gone, this church was certainly not forgotten, and we see Paul's love and concern for them by the prayers and his desire to be there. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you that you are the one who does this work within us. And Lord, we are blessed to um, just call you Father. And uh, Lord, to know that uh, we have this relationship with you. And I just pray, Lord, that our heart's desire would be to be around other saints, to encourage each other, Lord, to have oneness with one another. And Lord, that you would knit our hearts together in love as we um, seek to persevere in faith to the end. Lord, we thank you. And we just pray you would bless our remaining of our service in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.